Jesus said, um, greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. And so we gather on Memorial Day weekend and we remember those that um, paid the ultimate sacrifice, gave their life away so that you and I could do exactly what we're doing right now, which in the history of humankind has not occurred often. You can gather and worship God freely and of your own choice and volition. And so uh, we think of the men and women that have died in order to protect that. And I do want to honor everybody that served. If you've served in any branch of the military, would you stand? I know my friend Dave did. Anybody else in the room today? Would you all celebrate them? Maggie is running the live stream in the back, I think. So uh, if you're online, you're watching online, give Maggie a shout out because she, she can't be in here to stand, but uh, she's serving you all online this morning. We're in a series called What If Jesus Was Serious? And we're asking ourselves that very serious question, right? And it's in regards to Jesus' most famous teaching, what's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. And again, it, it seems that it, it, these points that Jesus is making in this, this single longest recorded sermon of his I believe that they were often repeated. Luke, this first century historian, in his quite historically accurate recounting of Jesus, he records nearly the identical talk, but preached to a different crowd at a different location. And so these are themes which were not like outliers to Jesus and his ministry. Um, they, they were common, which makes the question that more urgent, I think, for us as 21st century audience. What if, if he kept saying these things, what if he were serious about these things and he wasn't just saying it with a wink and a nod? This week I discovered that if Jesus were serious about these things, my gym routine would be impacted. So I'll, I'll explain that to you. As I studied this portion of the scripture we're going to look at today, this, this portion of the sermon, I noticed that when I go to the gym... So, uh, you know, you'll do certain um, reps of different weights, right? I started to notice uh, that as I, you know, I, I would do one rep and I increase the weight and do another rep, increase the weight, do another rep, increase the weight. And then finally, when I get to the top rep, I drop the weight down for the last rep and I do, I do a, lot of, um, a lot of them in that, in that rep. Anyway, to make a long story short, I noticed that when I increase the weight, every time I go to increase the weight, I, I increase it immediately. As soon as I'm done with the prior set, I increase the weight immediately. And so it sits there on the higher weight. But that one rep where I have to decrease the weight, I wait until the very last second to decrease the weight on the machine. And as I started thinking about that, I said, why do you do that? Why do you have this ingrained in your head that you increase the weight as soon as possible and sit there with it high but when you need to decrease the weight, you wait to the last possible moment and you do it right before you lift. And the reason is because I'm a man in and around my 50s that still cares what other people in the gym think about what he's lifting. Like, it was, it's embarrassing, honestly, if you think about it, right? But I'll tell you what's even more embarrassing. <laughs> I said, I'm gonna stop doing it. I couldn't. I couldn't stop. Couldn't stop. My, I have a friend that, that, uh, that's kind of a big weightlifter guy, and he was, he was giving me some advice on some stuff. And he said, yeah, he goes, you got to drop the weight down and just do a lot more sets. He goes, It'll be, it's much better for you to, to use less weight and do more reps. And you know what I did with that advice? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. 
because I don't want to be the guy that's using less weight, right, and doing more reps. I would rather get hurt, which is true. <laughs> On a regular basis, I hurt myself going to the gym because for some reason I care about what other people in the gym think of me. It's, it's funny, and it's, it's not due to lack of confidence. I was talking to a, a friend of mine that is in much better shape than me and quite young, and he said he would love to go to the gym, but he feels like whenever he goes to the gym, everybody's watching him and judging him. And I said, that's what I think too. But I think they're going, wow, look at that old man over there. He's putting up some serious weight. I mean, he can't move his neck, but hey. <laughs> Why do I do that? It's, it's like every time I go, I'm on trial, right? And there's this, this jury that hangs out there in the room. Now, mind you, I tend to go, I usually go at lunch if I can, because there is an older crowd there, and, and I look more impressive in that kind of setting, right? It's like there's this jury of not even my peers that collect, and I'm worried about what their verdict is, right? I'm on trial, and I, I hear their voices in my head. Not only their voices, I, I hear mine, too. I hear my voice. And it's not just in the gym, right? It's, it's like everywhere. I hear your voice, and I hear my voice, and I'm always, I'm always trying to get you or even the voice in my head to validate me, to, to weigh in, right? to prove myself somehow. It's, it's quite strange, but it's not just me. I, I was writing this week, and, and as I thought about it, I, I started thinking, you know what I think have become the most two powerful forces maybe in humankind right now? They are these two forces. They are pleasure-inducing. They are rejection-initiating, behavioral changing. Maybe the most behavioral changing thing on Earth right now. I would argue that they may be more powerful than any army that's ever been amassed. They have just this singular ability to, to move people, to influence entire societies. They are literally that powerful. They're changing lives and opinions and societies day by day and click by click. I think the two most powerful first forces on earth, if not in the lives of an entire generation, are... Those two things, the Facebook like and the Instagram heart. Now, you might go, listen, John, that description was a bit hyperbolic, don't you think? But I actually don't think so. Facebook and Instagram, do you, do you all know how many people, if you combine them, and I, I know you can't really combine them because a, a lot of people are on two of them, but if you combine them, um, there are over 5 billion people on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook alone has, I think, three and a half billion people on it. Just perspective. You know there's only 7.8 billion people on the face of the planet. That's how big the reach is of that like and that heart. Dar Meshi is a neuroscientist at Michigan State. He's the first person that's examined people um, who use social media using an MRI. And what his brain scan showed was that the regions that are active when you post something or like something or some, when somebody else likes, clicks the like on our posts, when that notification appears, the brain's reward system is activated. And, and, and it's that region that's in the ventral, uh, stri let me say it correctly, the ventral striatum. It's also that area of your brain that gets activated when somebody clicks like on your stuff. 
is the same area of the brain that gets activated when you see delicious food, alcoholic drinks, sex, money, and that's activated during drug consumption. Now, let me give you that list again. You have the thumbs up, which is doing the same thing to five billion people that food, alcohol, sex, money, and drugs do. Five billion people. I know I'm not breaking any ground, most of us know this, but social media usage, particularly the like and the heart features, they've been associated with, here's the list, decreased verbal and nonverbal communication skills, a decreased in-person interaction, an increased sense of loneliness and isolation, a distorted sense of reality due to misinformation and censorship, connection addiction, FOMO, fear of missing, missing out, lower self-esteem and comparison anxiety, a false sense of intimacy, virtual cancellation, which declares you and your opinion unworthy of public attention. It's actually a study, uh, many studies now, that have examined the link between social media usage and mental health. And the one thing that comes back all the time is the same. Low levels of social media usage are associated with better mental health. There's a large-scale study that, that, that shows occasional users of social media are three times less likely to be depressed than heavy users. Importantly, right, one study found that people who limited their social media use to just a half hour a day had significantly lower depressive and anxiety systems compared to a control, a control group. The active use of social media can involve strenuous impression management. I love that word, impression management. That's me at the gym. Often with the purpose, listen to, to, to this about your pathetic pastor, often with the purpose of seeking the approval and admiration of other old men in the gym. I mean of others, uh, of others. In psychology, this is known as a search for external validation. In urban slang, it's known as fishing for likes. Indeed, this process can result in unhealthy self-scrutiny of body image, physical appearance, and general lifestyle. Some research indicates that strenuous efforts to portray a my-fun-filled life version of our reality has severe psychological costs especially if the desired approval and validation is not forthcoming. This can lead to self-doubt, self-loathing. In fact, the like and the heart emojis are so problematic, I'm not sure if you heard this, that both Facebook and Instagram have actually experimented with getting rid of them. Did you know that? Because they're under that much pressure. They understand what it's doing to our culture. And so their plans were you would only see how many likes you got, but nobody else could see how many likes your post got. The funny thing is, they just haven't done it yet. I wonder why. I was talking, actually, with Sky Jathani, the author of, of this book that we've been using kind of as a platform, about social media usage. He's done a lot on his podcast about it, and he said, I can come to your church and scare the crud out of your church about social media. He goes, the statistics are horrible. He said, there's only one problem. There's, in terms of isola uh, isolation and anxiety and depression and self-harm, he goes, there's only one person that does worse than the groups that are on social media. And I said, who's that? He goes, the one person in the community that's not allowed on social media. His numbers are even worse. Because then they feel even more isolated, right? More alone, more by themselves, more ostracized. And he said, he said, John, it's a collective action problem. He said, the solution is simple. It's a collective action thing. Everybody in the community just has to decide we're not going to do this anymore. Smoking. Everybody in the society just kind of decides we don't, we're not going to do that anymore, right? Um, drunk driving. Everybody in the society just decides we're not going to do that anymore. 
So I thought it was interesting, right? Because as modern day as this problem appears to be, there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus dealt with this deeply rooted need of, quote, impression management and desire for external validation head on because it's a huge, huge problem. And at its root, it's a deeply spiritual problem. Jumping back into what Matthew, this tax collector turned follower of Jesus, recorded in that sermon, that most famous of sermons, Jesus starts, be careful. It's a warning, right? And I would say it actually sounds somewhat urgent. Be careful. Take care of. Be on the lookout for. Watch out because something's wrong. There's a warning. And what Jesus is about to warn us about at first seems both counterintuitive and in a direct opposition to what he had actually just said earlier in the sermon. Be careful. What should I be careful about? Not to practice your righteousness. This is actually interesting, okay? you got to join the crowd, right? Jesus is warning them about being good. He's not warning them about being bad. He's warning them about being good. It's a warning about practicing righteousness. That's the counterintuitive part. You have to be warned about practicing your righteousness. And that word righteousness there, it's interesting. I looked it up. In the Greek in which it was written, it has judicial undertones to it. It's the regular New Testament term used for God's judicial approval. So it refers to, in a sense, what is deemed right by God, what is approved by God in God's eyes. Be careful, Jesus is saying, about doing what's deemed right by God that would be good in God's eyes. Be careful what? Be careful what? Why do I need to be careful about doing what's right in God's eyes? Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. You see that? It's a warning about righteousness. And while it's counterintuitive, right, it seems to be in opposition, opposition to what Jesus taught earlier too. Remember, just earlier in this sermon, he said, oh, make sure you let your light shine before man. Do not take your lamp and put it under a, a bushel. No, instead, put it on a lampstand. How do you reconcile that, right? Well, here, next verse. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. The reconciliation of it is the reward. Who are you performing for? You might remember we talked about this along the way. Jesus concludes the sermon both in Luke and in here with, with warnings. He says there are two paths. One of them leads to life and the other to death. There are two trees, one with fruit that, that would give life, one, that fruit, one whose fruit would be poison and take life. There are two homes, one that is built on rock and will survive, and another that's built on sand that when the storms of life come into it will crumble and, and actually kill everybody inside. But the thing that, that, that you have to understand as you're looking back at this sermon is what Jesus is trying to show you is they look from the outside very similar. There's two paths, there's, there's two trees, there's two kinds of fruit, there's, there's two homes. How can I tell which one's going to lead to life and which one is going to lead to death? And what he's trying to teach here, and by the way, what social scientists and psychologists are pointing out today is that there are actually two kinds of righteousness. They both look the same on the outside, but one actually leads to life. Being good, there's a way to be good that leads to life. And there's a way to be good that actually winds up killing you. Leads to death. How can you tell the difference? 
I think Jesus would say it's simple. Who's your audience? Whose eyes were you performing them for? Whose approval, whose validation were you seeking? Whose reward were you trying to receive? Who were you allowing to, to, to have a verdict on, on, on your life? If you're performing acts of righteousness, acts meant to validate you in the eyes of God, right? Great, but were you instead actually just seeking that validation from others? Be honest with yourself. So when you give to the needy, Jesus said, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites. Hypocrites, that word there, again, in the Greek, it has this meaning of don't announce it like the actors on the stage do. That's not who they are. They're playing a role, Jesus says. When you give to the needy, don't announce it, don't announce it with trumpets as the, as the actors on a stage do. Right? They do it in the synagogues and on the streets. And here it is. Why do they do it? To be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. Here's the interesting thing. That sounds threatening, but it's not, it's not threatening. Really, all Jesus is saying is they're going to get exactly what it is they wanted. What did they want? They wanted validation and approval and a verdict from other people, and they got what they were looking for. They got it. But... When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Jesus says, let your light shine before others, right? So that, and there's a, if you go back, there is a so that attached to it. So, so that people may see your good deeds and glorify, not you, not go, oh my gosh, look at that old man putting up all that weight right? They don't look at my Facebook post and go, oh, John is such a good human. Isn't he a good human being? Such a good human being. No. That they might glorify your Father in heaven. What's the motivation? What is the heart? Who's being lifted up and promoted? And we screw these things up all the time, right? So people read this, and this is what we do in the church all the time. We, we read it, and we go, okay, so when I'm going to give money, when I'm going to give money away, I should make sure I do it with my left hand, right? Not with my right. Because it's a lot easier to give money away with your left hand than it is to look at your heart, isn't it? And, and yet our desire for outside approval, it's so strong. It is so deep that Jesus just keeps going on and on about it. And when you pray... Do not, here it comes again, right? Here, now he's going to warn you about praying. Did you know you could pray wrong? At least with the wrong motivation, right? Here's the warning about prayer. Don't be like what? The actors on a stage. Don't be an actor on a stage. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? To be seen by others. Why are they praying? To be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, you've, they've received their reward in full. Again, no threat. They got what it was that they were looking for. They got what they wanted. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. And then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Again, what do we do with these things? We build prayer closets. Ah, okay, so what Jesus is teaching me is I need to pray in a closet. That's not what he's teaching you. It's a lot easier to build prayer closets than it is to change hearts, right? That's not what God is trying to get across here. That's not the point of what Jesus is dealing with. The point is the motive. The point is this, 
this reflection on why I care so much about what others th think, why I want their approval so bad. Why? What's the reward that it is that I'm desiring, right? The likes and the, lo the loves, the hearts, the thumbs up. Do I want those from other people or is it, am I really pursuing them from God? Obviously, the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus goes into next, is worthy of its own sermon series. I'm not going to go into it. But I just want you to understand, this is the context in which Jesus, Jesus teaches people to pray. It's within this discussion of, of people that are hypocrites, in a sense, doing these things to be seen and getting a reward there. And so Jesus, I want you to appreciate one nuance, maybe. Maybe you've never noticed this, and it really gets hammered home when you understand the context in which he teaches this. Look at and appreciate this one nuance, right? This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. Do you catch something there? The two most repeated words, right? Whenever I pray, do you know what the two most repeated words I pray in my prayer are? I and me. I and me. There's not one I and me in this prayer. Every single word repeated over and over again. Well, not every single word, but the words that are repeated over and over again, right? Instead are our, your, us. Our, your, us. Our, your, us. Us, not me. It's not about. It's not about. It's not me. And so, one more time, just to make sure you get it right. Jesus goes, and when you fast, do not right. Here's another warning. It's another warning about doing a good thing, right? We got one about righteousness. We got one about prayer. Here comes one about fasting. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, as the actors do, because what do actors do? They disfigure their faces. Why do they do it? To show others they're fasting. That's their motive. Their motive isn't to hear from God, right? They're not kind of setting aside their, their human needs or whatever to, to really get themselves to a place where they might be able to hear from God. That's not it at all. They want to be seen. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, here it is again, who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Whose reward are we working for? Because if you're looking for the reward of men, you can get it. It's not that hard. But what you know is once you get it, it, it didn't really satisfy, and you're going to try chasing after it again. It's actually kind of funny, right? Don't disfigure your face. Don't look miserable. Don't wear baggy clothes. Everybody goes, oh, my gosh, are you losing weight? Well, fasting. I mean, what good, would a, what, what good would a good fast be if people didn't know I was fasting? Right? It's a hard thing. And so Jesus concludes. He goes, look, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy, uh, destroy and where thieves break in to steal. And specifically, have you ever noticed, think about the context of this. What treasure is he warning about? The approval of others. Why are you seeking so desperately to be validated by everybody else? Why are you trying to pile those things up? 
But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of my favorite lines in the scripture. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We tend to think it's the other way, right? Where, wherever our heart is, that's where we will give things to. Jesus goes, no, that's not true. Wherever it is that you, whatever, wherever it is you invest, that's where your heart goes. I've given you this example all the time with, with my kids' college football teams. I didn't care about any of these schools. In fact, one of them that my kids went to, I hated until I started spending tens of thousands of dollars a year now. Now I'm the biggest fan going, right? Love it. Can't get enough. Why? My treasure went over there and my heart followed it. But think about it, right? Think about it. The reason that social media has the power it does, right, is because we have given our hearts over to others. We've given the deepest, most personal place of our soul, we've given that over to others. We have allowed that to be the treasure, the validation, the likes, the clicks, the, the, the attaboys, the, the pats on the shoulder. And for, for many of us, right, these places were meant for God to fill, for us to have life. But for many of us, we just hand them over on the street to, to anybody, to, to the guy next to me at, at the gym, like, what am I doing? What are you doing? You wonder why we have an entire generation. I mean, the pursuit of likes. You ever think about this? The pursuit of likes is killing us. We keep chasing them. They lead like the path and the tree and the fruit and the house on the sand to death. Such a huge biblical principle. Such a big warning. The authors of Scripture write about it over and over, but we hardly ever talk about it. We'd much rather build a prayer closet or make sure we only give out money with our left hand. Much easier. Jesus in John chapter 5. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's a real question, folks. How can you believe? The implication is, by the way, you can't. You can't believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes from God. This is that serious. If you are a social media influencer, listen up right now. But heck, if you can't lower the weight at the gym, you should listen up right now. Because the heart issue is the exact same thing. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Again, here is John describing why many of the religious leaders in the temple at the time when Jesus was there... You, you know a lot of people that were, were, were part of the Pharisaical community, the Pharisees, that, that were part of the temple and the religious system in Israel? Did you know a lot of those people actually believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Which makes you wonder, well, then why, did he, why was he crucified? Why was he rejected? Well, John gives the reason. He says that all these people, many of these people knew who Jesus was, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't come forward and, and, and testify to it. They would never openly acknowledge it. Why? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In a very real way, Jesus winds up being crucified because of our addiction to the approval of others. From the Apostle Paul, writes most of the New Testament after the four Gospels. Paul wrestled with this concept and understood it at a deeper level than I think anybody else. Here's what he goes. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or, or, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Jesus. 
Again, same warning. If you are trying to please man, if you are seeking the approval, the validation, and the verdict of others on your life, on your importance, in a very real sense, you cannot be a servant of Jesus. You cannot. They are almost mutually exclusive. Finally, it's not just a New Testament preaching. It's an, Old Testament, uh, it's an Old Testament truth in the very ancient book of wisdom literature from Proverbs. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. It is quite literally, this is a trap. And most of us, if not all of us, find ourselves kind of like the bear caught in the trap, just dragging it around, waiting to get picked off. We've been ensnared by it. How do you get out of it? Well, again, back to Paul. He, he wrote a letter to this church in Corinth. It's a church he planted. And this church had gotten filled up with a lot of dis division and disunity. In fact, many of you know in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the chapter on love, Paul's writing to this church because they're fighting with each other. And you know what they're fighting over? Their own egos. They're, they're their own validation of, of one another. He had planted this church on one of his missionary trips, but over time, various other big-name Christian leaders had come into town and begun ministering in the city. And different people in the church had different connections to these different leaders. Some people that were in the church were there because of Paul. And so they would say, hey, you know, you don't understand. I was discipled by Paul. But then Peter would roll into town. It would be like, no, 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 but you don't understand. Paul, never, Paul only met the post-resurrection Jesus. I've been discipled by Peter. Don't you see, Peter walked on water. Paul never walked on water. And then there was apparently another great teacher named Apollos. And Apollos was, was just this wonderful counselor. And people would go, yeah, that's all well and good, but have you heard Apollos preach? I'm in a small group with Apollos. Right? And this is what they did. Lots of pride and boasting attached to the status each one in the church was receiving based on the, their claims of relationships with different, different leaders. And so Paul writes to them, and he just says to them as directly as possible. So then, he says, no more boasting about human leaders. They didn't have hearts or, or likes, but what they did have was associations. Some had Paul, some had Peter, some had Apollos. And it was an assertion that was giving them their validation. Look at me, I'm important, right? Because of this man or that man. Can I just share with you? I mean, again, these things are so, if you allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of these things, they, they, will, they will weigh on you. I remember when I first started coming to, to Menham Hills, there were two, if not three, professional football players that came to church here. And do you know what I would tell everybody when they asked about where I went to church? At all of them. Not once would I talk about, oh, you should, this church, you know, you should hear what God is, God is at work, you should, the, the, the worship, the, the, the poor, you know, what did John, um, when, when John was wondering, when he was put in, in jail, and, and uh, he was wondering if Jesus was who he said he is, um, Jesus sends his disciples back and says, well, go tell them all the marks of the gospel are happening, right? The blind, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the good news is being preached to the poor. I never said that once about, the, about Madam Hills. I said, you know, there's three football players that go here. <laughs> Validation by relationship. See, the church I go to is important, and, and I know one of them. Paul actually reveals something about what's behind this deep need for validation of others, the, the need for them to render a verdict on our lives. 
Here's what he said. He follows up. He goes, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Regard us, Paul goes, don't regard us because of, of anything other than what God is doing in our lives, right? Don't judge us once of one, one against another. We are all the same. We're just simply servants of Jesus. But it's interesting. If you drop down a couple of verses, here's what Paul writes. He goes, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Here comes the key, the key line here. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? That verse right in the middle there, right? Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over the other. In other translations, the word there is you, you won't have pride over being associated with one of us over another. Mike DeLuca, our youth pastor, gave me a book. Uh, uh, he's given it to me twice. The first time I ignored it. The second time he, uh, the sec well, you know, he's a kid. I know much more. So, uh, so he gave me a book, and uh, I was uh, doing my research this week, and believe it or not, as I was working on this, a quote from that book showed up. So I started digging through books uh, that, that, that I have piled up, and there was this book that Mike gave me. Um, and it's a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The author, who is Tim Keller, notes that the word there for pride that gets translated sometimes pride, sometimes puffed up, it's a really distinct word in the Greek. It, it's, not, it's not the word hubris, which is the normal word for pride. This is a word in the, it, that's only used in the Bible six times. It's, it's only used by Paul. It's used in this book six times and in only one other place in the entire Bible. So Paul is trying to get a, a, across a point here to this church re, re, related to this principle, this, this pride issue, this puffed-up issue. And what Keller points out is that, that this word means o, to be overinflated, swollen, and distended beyond its proper use. And it would have invoked or evoked in, in, the, in the reader an image of an organ in the human body that's been distended and inflamed and just on the verge of bursting. I actually had several pictures of this that I was going to show you, and all of them were just gross. So I was like, ah, it's Memorial Day. I won't put them up there. But if you've ever seen a distended organ, it's disgusting, which is kind of Paul's point. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to describe the normal condition of the human ego or, or at one level, the human heart. What he's saying is that at the center of the human heart is this emptiness and therefore this deep desire to fill it. Something has to give us our sense of validation, of being worthy of something, some kind of sense of self-worth or purpose. And if the heart was made for God to give you that, when you try to put other things into this gigantic void, they just don't fill it. They, they never can. And so your heart is on this relentless, continual pursuit of validation accomplishment, purpose. You never get enough of it, right? Yet this concept of puffed up, of distended, means that while it's empty, that the heart is also hurting. He, he makes the comparison uh, of the heart as it aches to, uh, to other body parts. He says, for example, notice that the only time you're aware of parts on your body is when there is something wrong with them, when they hurt. 
None of you walked in here this morning. I guarantee none of you walked in here this morning and said, you know, my toes feel wonderful right now. <laughs> right? Never thought of them. Why? Working fine. Never thought, you know, never thought about your eyesight, unless it wasn't working. Never thought about your ears, unless they were ringing. Never thought about your elbow, unless you have some arthritis. Parts of our body don't draw attention to themselves unless there is something wrong with them. What Paul's trying to convince us to with that term puffed up is that there is something deeply, profoundly, incredibly wrong with our egos. Our identities have something deeply flawed in them because they are constantly drawing attention to themselves. They never stop. Have you ever noticed you never stop wondering how you look? You've never stopped being offended by how you've been treated. You never stop thinking about what others think. It just never stops. You get caught in it through the day. It's hard to get a day, have a day go by without feeling hurt or slighted or rejected. The heart, the ego, is always drawing attention to itself. It's both at one level empty, right? It's hungry as heck, and, it, and, and it's, it's hurting. It's just, it's just this, this massive distended organ. How do you try to fill it? How do you try to, to, to quell the ache? Well, you try to fill it up, right? How do you do that? You, you, you do it by, by, by comparison. Here's what Paul says. He goes, this way you won't be puffed up in being, quote, a follower of one of us over against the other. Really? Because my church has seven football players in it. <laughs> we compare ourselves one to another. How much weight can you put up? How many likes did I get? And you know, I was happy with my likes until I saw your likes. I was happy with, with the shape I was in until I saw this one old guy that drives me nuts. Guy works out in, in a sweat. He's, he's 80, 81. He works out in, a, uh, in jeans and a sweatshirt and, and a mask. And the guy lifts more than me. I mean, I thought I was in good shape till I saw him. Nothing changed, right? I just compared. I was perfectly happy until I looked. I lost all the pleasure of my likes. I lost all the pleasure of my gains when I saw that you had more likes, when I saw that he put up more weight. And since anything that is overinflated, right, anything that is puffed up with air is in constant danger of what? Being popped. This is what's in constant danger. Our egos, our hearts are in constant danger of being puffed because we fill it with what Paul calls air, meaningless things that, 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 that have no weight to them at all. He said you're puffed up, you're not filled up. Your ego, your heart, it just sits on shifting sand. Do you see that? It's, it's so interesting to, to be inflated or deflated or actually a result of the same thing, a fragile ego, a, a hurt and hungry heart. This constant pursuit, this need for, for gain and accomplishment and that avoids and admiration and pats on the back. Our hearts of these egos, they can never be satisfied. They're insatiable. It doesn't matter how much you put in there, how many likes you get, how much weight you can pick up. It, it never satisfies. It's the root of what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's much harder to fix this than it is to build a prayer closet. There he was warning about righteousness and good works and prayer and fasting, trying to get the verdicts of others' opinions, to use those things, to be validated by them. Here Paul's saying the same thing. He's going, stop trying to use me or Peter or Apollos to do it. And he's using this very evocative word to help us understand how fickle 
the heart is. So what does he prescribe? What's the solution? What do you do? How, he describes how he understands who Jesus is and what he's done. And then, then he talks about how his heart works. Here's how he starts. He goes, this is actually kind of funny if you just picture him saying it. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any other human court. The word judge there is that word verdict. It's what we're all looking for, the verdict, the validation of ourselves. Most of the time, we're looking for it from others. What he's saying is I've gotten to the point of the place of not caring what you think about me at all. I just don't care. Some of this comes as you get older. I took an a older, uh, a, a older friend of mine to uh, one of my kids' football games, and I, I was younger and cared more than about what, I still care way too much about what people think, but then I cared even more. And this older guy I was with, he, he, he didn't seem to care at all. And so at one point, he took out a fingernail clipper and in the stands of the football game, started clipping his nails in front of everybody. And that was a little awkward, but what was even more awkward is that the nail trimmings were piling up on the woman's purse in the row in front of us. And I didn't care that my friend was embarrassing himself. What did I care about? Me, how the reflection that this was making on me, right? My identity, my self-worth. Paul's going, look, I don't care about you. I don't care about anybody. Which in modern day 21st America, we're like, that's right. We know this now. We understand this is, this is not... What do we tell our kids? It doesn't matter what other people think about you, right? We tell them that all the time, but we don't leave it there, do we? We tell them, we don't, it doesn't matter what other people think about you. All that matters is what you think about you. Isn't that what we say all the time? All that matters is, is what you think of you. The only validation you need is your own. You don't need external judgment. Just worry about what you think about yourself, which is what makes, what makes so stunning what Paul says next. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, you know what? This isn't about remedying low self-esteem from others with high self-esteem from myself. He goes, not only do I not care what you think, I don't care what I think. I know what the voice on the streets say about me, and I know what the voice in my head says about me. And I don't listen to either one of them. Could you imagine being free of the voice in your head? Could you imagine the freedom? Just going, I don't know. It doesn't weigh on me at all. He goes, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. He says, look, I, I may be living up to my own standards, but who knows? My standards might be super low. Living up to my standards, that's not what validates me. In fact, Paul would tell Timothy later on that Jesus came in the world to save sinners, the chief of which was him. What Paul's saying is, look, I don't connect my sins, nor do I connect my accomplishments to my worth, to my validation, to my verdict. I have disconnected from my sense of value your voice, their voice, and my voice. None of it impacts who I am. What you think of me or how I think of me, I will not let my heart be puffed up, nor will I let it be deflated. Why? How, does, how do you do that? How do you live this way? He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Paul goes, look, I, I'm out. I don't play the game anymore. I'm done. Your opinion of me doesn't matter. My opinion, me, to, the voice in my head doesn't matter. His heart, his ego is no longer constantly hurting and drawing attention to itself. 
He doesn't, he doesn't ever walk into a room and wonder how, how he, he looks in the room. He only deeply cares about one thing, and that is what Jesus thinks. He's no longer puffed up with air, but he's filled up with something much more solid and immovable. And here's what Paul knows that you and I need to adopt. You might know that verse, but we don't get it right. Here's why. Paul understood God's approval of, of you, his judgment of you, is solid, it's immovable. We tend to think that God's judgment, opinion of ourselves, is like other people's opinions of us, right? Or our own opinions of ourselves. You know, they move based on the day. Having a good day, oh, God must love me today, right? Having a bad day, voice in your head, you're some Christian. You know what I hear all the time? You call yourself a pastor, right? Based on the day. Having a good day, I'm down in Guatemala, I go to bed at night thinking, boy, he loves me. God must really love me. He must be impressed with me, really. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? <laughs> On bad days, it's like, oh, my gosh, I don't know. I'm going to hell, right? This is not the gospel. Paul goes, man, I disconnected that garbage a long time ago. I, I don't listen to any of those things. What Paul understood is that God's opinion of him, his judgment of him came a long time ago. Keller had a brilliant point on it. He said, Christianity as opposed to every religion on earth. Forget religion. As opposed to every other relationship on earth is different because the verdict came in on you long before your performance. Do you know that? Long before your performance, God rendered a verdict on you. What Paul understood was that God's verdict came in first, and it had nothing to do with how he was doing. And so he could disconnect his performance from his value. God sent Jesus Christ into the world while we were yet sinners. And while we were yet sinners, he died for you. If you want to see your value, if you want to get a sense for your worth, don't listen for others, don't look for their validation, and don't listen to that voice in your head either. If you want to know God's verdict about you, simply look at the cross where God sent his son to die for you in your place. That was his will for his son because of, of the worth and the value of you. It's what Paul allowed Paul, who owned this principle. He, he, could you imagine a man being Paul walking around going, I don't care, I don't care. It's what allowed him to write to the Roman church. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. How about this? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Friends, you have to ask yourself when you walk out of here this morning and you find yourself, it'll be me back at the gym next week, but it'll happen a million times before then. You have to ask yourself when these things come, when that voice comes into your head, what am, how did I allow myself to get back in this courtroom again? How did I allow myself to get dragged back in here again? I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. The verdict is in, my friends. Live that way, because court is adjourned. Let's stand and close the song.